0: The Wiser Podcast, conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cezo Welsh, walsh and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. Keith Breckenridge is a renowned professor of history and deputy director of Wiser. In this podcast, he explores biometric capitalism as it is currently unfolding on the African continent. In this podcast, I want to talk about work that I've been doing for a long time now, nearly 20 years, on the development of uh, a new kind of capitalism on the African continent. Uh, I'm calling this biometric capitalism. um, And I know that as soon as I use that phrase, people are going to say, this is too complicated to understand or terribly boring. Um, And I, I think. You know, if I want to try and do one thing with this podcast, it's to get people to see, in fact, how interesting, exciting, but also in some ways uh, dangerous, this new development actually is. So I want to do three things. I want to talk about what biometric biometric capitalism is. Um, I want to explain why this new form of capitalism is distinctive to the African continent, um, and why it represents a really fundamental, a 180 degree change in the ways in which capitalism has been developing over the last 500 years on the continent. And then lastly, I want to talk about what we could call the political implications of biometric capitalism. What is it going to do to African societies? And what does it mean for the vast majority of people on the continent? So what is biometric capitalism? Um, and I think it's clear that our best way to do this is to provide a kind of example um, and to look at one of the big firms that are busy with this project on the continent, and there are many of them. But the simplest and easiest probably to understand is to look at the bank Capitec in South Africa. Um, Capitec didn't exist 20 years ago. It, there was no, nothing there, no firm... Uh, And today it's the third largest of the South African banks, Uh, smaller only than Standard Bank and First National Bank, First Rand, which are old, really enormous banks, big monopoly banks, actually. Um, Capitec is twice as valuable as ABSA. It's three times as valuable as NetBank. NetBank's been around for over a century. It has 10 million customers. Um, It's grown uh, enormously and really uh, astonishing, doubling almost every year um, for the last 20 years. And Capitec was at the beginning a paperless, famously a paperless bank. That was part of the, the motivation behind the planning for the bank. Um, and what was Key to that paperlessness, to the just you know, getting all the documents out of the system, getting rid of all the back office work that banks do and have to hire people to manage, was a system of digital fingerprinting right from the beginning. They initially used a a private system which they purchased um, from, I think, an Australian company, but by 2007, Capitech has been using a direct link to the government's population register, which we call Harness, the Home Affairs National Identification System. That database has fingerprinting and identification information and what we call basic vital data. So who your parents are, who you're married to, who your children are. Harness uh, covers everybody in the country and lots of people who are no longer alive. So all South Africans are captured in a sense, their identities are captured and their fingerprints are captured in this database that sits in Pretoria. Uh, And what Capitech can do when you go in there to apply for credit is they can confirm your identity, that you are who you say you are. And of course, that allows them to make much better decisions about whether they want to allow you to borrow money because they can track whether you've made those requests either internally in their company or outside. Um, so they use then what we what we call the credit bureau and their own credit scoring inside the bank to track, to make decisions, and they've, they've been able to do this within, you know, extremely profitably. It's been very, uh, very useful for the company. Uh, m- And that is an invisible second part of the biometric capitalism story that after 2005, the law in South Africa requires lenders to share information. So this is like, it's a kind of form of communal property, actually very unusual uh, in South Africa. The banks basically share with each other and with all other lenders. So that would include, for example, cell phone companies. They all share information about all transactions, and that information is available to everybody who subscribes to the database. So they have an extremely accurate picture, better understanding, in fact, than many than the, than customers typically have of their own spending ability, earning and spending ability. And they and they can build and they use that combination of things. Those two really powerful technical instruments. The the one is this ping, the ability to ping the database. That the biometric database that's owned by the state. So when you put your fingerprint on it, it shows, says, this is Keith Breckenridge, or this is not Keith Breckenridge. Uh, And then another database, which is the credit bureau database, and many of these credit bureau databases, it's not just one. Uh, And the combination is what allows them to build up a tremendously profitable, what we call asset base in credits. They've been able to lend to tens of millions of people, um, at relatively high interest rates. The interest rates are not as, you know, they're not as shocking as the, what we call motionesis, it's not 30% a month, but it's like 30% a year. Uh, and in a context where, as you can, as you're probably aware, many governments, central banks are trying to actually pay people to borrow. Interest rates are close to zero around the world. So this is a very profitable model of, of lending, this, this particular combination. The Capitec model, it doesn't only use fingerprinting in its outward facing technology. It's not only when its customers come to them to to, ask for credit, they also use biometrics internally. Capitec is one of the very few firms in the world where you have to be able, your fingerprints have to be capturable by their database, by their biometric database, when you apply for a job. In other words, if your fingerprints cannot be read, you cannot be. You cannot work for Capitec, and they then use that. Those biometric authentication tools to uh, authenticate, to to confirm, prove that you have the rights to make every decision within this, within the, the bank's database, and that what that does is it builds a very powerful auditing system. It means that every transaction that takes place, every time money moves inside Capitec or credits are transferred, there's an, a fingerprint for the bank official that is attached to that transaction. And that, that is the other aspect of biometric capitalism. It's, the, it's a capitalism which uses uh, biometric information from the body to, capture, to, to to audit and track how all information moves in the system. Home Affairs does the same in South Africa. Uh, Safaricom does the same. NetOne does exactly the same and the ban- banking ver- verification number in Nigeria is the same. So this is an inward and outward facing form of control um, that uses fingerprinting instead of all the other paper-based ways in, in which we typically identify people. So that would be your driver's license or your passport or birth certificate or some document that shows that you are a respectable citizen like land ownership or some other tool. So biometric capitalism represents a real change in the way in which capitalism has been developing on the continent for the last really half a millennium, maybe even longer, 500, 600 years. Um, And there are many ways in which scholars of uh, African capitalism have stressed its unusual features. Um, So Walter Rodney, in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, You know, if you wanted to come away with a single metaphor of what he's describing in that book, it's that capitalism is a capitalism of the mine and the harbor, that the infrastructures of exploitation are designed to move resources from a single point in the colony to the point at which the colony connects with the international. The railway line doesn't have anything to do with ordinary people. It disconnects the resources that the colonial economy is interested in. And that's very similar to the work on extraversion and the gatekeeper state that Jean-Francois Bayard and Fred Cooper have both stressed in their histories of African capitalism. And the idea of extraversion is that African economies generate a surplus at the point of exchange between the local economy and the world economy, and then accumulation takes place offshore. I'm arguing that bi- biometric capitalism also marks a break with the predominant reliance on mineral exports and what's really interesting about biometric capitalism is that it's producing a new form of very profitable exploitation and accumulation that is aimed at the domestic economy it's not about it's not at all about exporting it's about building up systems of accumulation that are aimed at really taking advantage of leveraging the indebtedness the new indebtedness of tens of millions of people on the continent, so I know that when people hear this, most people look at debt with real fear. Um, you know, it's kind of encoded in our. You know, we're told all the time debt is a drug, it's a terrible thing. Uh, but it's useful to think about as an economic historian. It's useful to think about how important credit has been in fostering prosperity everywhere. Right, wherever you look at prosperous societies, what you see is that they relied very powerfully on the development of credit systems, credit between firms, credit between individuals, credit between individuals and the state, uh, sometimes credit between the state and individuals. Those those forms of uh, dependence, if you like, of economic dependence are also in fact assets. They're ways in which people create uh, another layer uh, of value in the society. If credit is not available, it's very difficult to make modern capitalism function properly. So colonial states killed off credit systems on the African continent in the 1920s. They chased common lawyers out of the rural areas in which Africans lived and they prohibited formal credit. They actually made it impossible for banks and for companies to lend to Africans and they made it impossible for them to to go after debt. So the really striking thing is how a form of what we call credit apartheid, what Deborah James calls credit apartheid, actually exists across the continent. And this is even true for the French colonies where the French similarly monopolized, the the government monopolized the forms of credit that were available to people. Uh, So what really is striking about modern capitalism on the African continent is that firms, all African firms struggle to access Formal credit. They can't go to a bank. They can't. Very, it's very difficult for them to go to a bank and borrow money, um, you know, for local investments or for any enterprise they have they're interested in pursuing locally. But they can't do that also for trade credit. So they can't borrow from a bank in order to bring in a product uh, and then sell it locally. And that really accounts for one of the fundamental sources of weaknesses on the continent. And biometric credit changes this. It's changing it very rapidly as the banks build up a very powerful and precise picture of what we could call reputational capital. So they know, a company like Capitec, for example, knows that of its 10 million customers, it knows exactly who it can lend more money to and what the prospects are that those people will be able to repay. So in a way, it's building up a a digital and informated feedback-driven system for making these decisions about the allocation of formal credit that used to be made, would have been made by the common law or by particularly land titling. That would have been property, formal property was the way in which people access credits before these colonial prohibitions took place in the 1920s. So there's a real possibility here of fixing one of the fundamental problems of the African continent. And And I don't doubt that that is going to happen. So we're seeing a massive expansion of formal credit across the continent, that there are also clear dangers. And those can be mapped in three broad areas. The the first one is the one that people know about best. It's part of the sort of moral economy of of how we think about debt. And that is this idea that people borrow for consumption and not for investment. So huge numbers of people borrow in order to buy food or to buy school clothes. Um, And they do this at very high rates of interest that are in the long run and sustainable. I don't think there's any question that is a fundamental problem. So, the question, the, f- the political question is how to control credit and how to encourage investments that will be, if you, do, if you like, productive rather than investments that are geared towards making um, the biggest companies like Pick and Pay or Checkers or Woolworths wealthy uh, because people will consume beyond their means. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to develop, but I'm not. I'm not nowhere near as convinced as some of the people who comment on this that that is the fundamental danger. A potentially bigger danger is monopolization. So there's a huge advantage if you're if you are the lender and you have information about a significant number of the people who are borrowing. So in SafariCom's case, that's 20 million people. If MTN becomes the predominant lender in Nigeria, they will know about half the Nigerian population, and they'll know things that none of their competitors can find out. Uh, And the danger here is that in the long run, that could become an instrument that builds up something like what Facebook and Google and Amazon have done in the United States. I think the real question there, in both instances, the high interest rates, the poor investments in particular kinds of debt, uh, and the danger of monopolization is it's about regulations, about having regulators who have the ability to control how these banks and lenders do their work. And yeah, I think the, the history is much more complicated than people think. The national credit regulator in South Africa, even in the, in the net one story, has been really effective in controlling how interest rates were issued to the poorest borrowers. The story is not what people think in the public domain. The, the regulator actually has done really effective work. And then finally, there's the issue of what we could call presidentialism. And the real danger, and it's, it's both a resource and a threat, is that these companies form alliances with the most powerful political interests, which is a little bit like what you know has happened with oil, where the biggest oil companies connect up with the presidency and the president's family becomes a great beneficiary of the, of the wealth that's generated from oil exports, which is what's happening in particular in Angola. And the danger is that these firms make a deal. And they literally offer equity and they offer significant shareholding to the most powerful families in the country. Uh, And that could be a real driver of long term authoritarian government. I think there's a real danger here. Um, and And we're seeing it play out in many countries. So one of the things that's really key is for people to skill up and to think carefully about how these technologies function and to, and to, to avoid hiding from them whenever you hear terms that uh, you're unfamiliar with. And I really hope people can see from this little podcast why it's worth spending a little bit of time trying to understand this problem.